Hello and welcome to From Fear to Fire. I am your host, Heather Hanson O'Neill, and From Fear to Fire is a special podcast about the secrets to overcome fear, embrace your gifts, and achieve success. This is the place where real people share real challenges, where you can find a common bond and uncommon wisdom through their journeys to help you move from fear to fire. If you like what you hear, subscribe so you don't miss any great programs and leave a review if you want. I'm very thankful for those. If you're in deep fear and having trouble seeing the light, please reach out to someone. Here's a number for contacthelpline.org for 24-hour emotional listening support, 800-932-4616. And you know I always begin with a quote, and today's quote of the day is, May your choices reflect your hopes not your fears. And that's by Nelson Mandela. And I'm super excited about, you know, who knows where our our show is going to go today, but I have a a sneaking suspicion it's going to be phenomenal. I'd like to uh, welcome our guest, Vinu. For over 18 years, Vinu Inspires has worked with children, teens, and adults to inspire them to be to believe in themselves and to know that they always have a choice. Vino has spent the last two decades working with at-risk teens, children with disabilities, and parents of children with behavioral issues. As a behavioral specialist and life coach, Vino specializes in working with kids, teens, and adults to look at their behaviors to help see what's working and what's not, help them see where they're at, where they want to be, and how to close that gap, including figuring out who they really are. Now, Vino has created a very interesting four-day program called the In-Home Turnaround, and some have called her the Kid Family Whisperer, uh, but I'm going to give her some time on the show to talk more about that, so we'll get back to that. They, through the lessons and the gifts that Vino has received from her past, it's helped her to be a huge advocate to make our society bully-proof. In order to do this, she speaks at schools, conferences, any platform to teach how to improve our self-worth, self-esteem, and to change our story. Vinu is a best-selling author for the following two books, Bully-Proof, Unleash the Hero Inside Your Kid, as well as her number one best-selling book, Numb. So I'd like to welcome our guest today. Hello, Vinu. How are you? I'm doing amazing. Thank you, Heather, for having me. Oh, I'm thrilled to have you. Uh, So you know what I'd love before we start is for you to just give a little bit more background. Is there anything I missed? Is there anything that you'd like to share before we delve into the deep stuff? Uh, no, I think that you pretty much summed it up. Um, I just would, if I want, if I could add anything, it would just be that when you hear my story, you'll see everything that you read is actually my gift now. It's the gift I found by going through the turmoil that I went through, and I found the gift in it. Yeah, and I think that's the key. And when we're stuck in it, it's kind of hard to find that gift. So um, I, I can't wait to for you to share your story of how you came to that realization. But I, I think before we do that, we have to go back to your childhood. And, and would you be willing to share some of the grief that you went through? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so my, I would say that um, I my stuff, my stuff, I call it my stuff, right? My baggage, my feeling different started when I was six years old. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents had an arranged marriage in India and my father was already established in California. So he brought my mom there. 
And I was born and raised in California. And it wasn't until we moved to a place in, um, in Orange County, California, and I went to a school that was my first experience of knowing I was different. We were playing like boys chase the girls. And um, I was really excited because I was like chasing this cute little boy. And I was so excited that I was going to touch him. And he stopped and he's like, don't touch me. I don't want to be black like you. And that was like my first realization that I was different. Hmm. And I did not know that that was a pivotal moment in my life that was going to set the trajectory of how I lived the rest of my life up until my changes when I was 34. Because all of a sudden there was like an implant, like a new filter that was put on me that you were different. And if you touch somebody, they could become black and black is bad. Dark is bad. Brown is bad. It's, it's amazing. You know, it's not just children, but people can be so hurtful. Um, you know, so continue. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, it's fine. I, I just feel like, you know, kids, kids only know what kids see in here, right? Like, yes. Yes. do I believe that this boy had an intention to make me feel bad or leave me out or whatever? Who knows? Who knows what his thoughts were? Was he taught at home? Dark is bad. Brown is bad. Black people are bad. And what ironic, I'm not black. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm as dark as people that are black, but I'm not. I mean, I'm, I'm Indian. And I didn't even know what that meant to be Indian because I was just a six-year-old kid at a school, right? I was just with other kids. And yeah. we had Mexican kids there. We had white kids. You know, uh, me and two, uh, I think my brother were the only Indian kids there at the time. We had um, Asian kids there. So I just thought we were all kids. Yeah. And But when we put that filter of I am different and dark is bad, that's now the lenses that we look through. Mm. And those are the lenses that I carried until I was 34 years old. Wow. Now, did you end up having um, additional negative reinforcement of that? Or did you just not receive enough of the positive reinforcement? Like, what happened after that? So as school went on, it was more and more feeling left out. So like when people would pick teams, right? The teacher would say, okay, we're playing kickball. You're a team captain. You're a team captain. I would hear the people, I'd be the last one picked and I would hear them say, oh, I got Vino on my team. So Mm. it reinforced, I'm bad, right? I'm not, I'm not the same. I'm different. Dark is bad. Um, As you know, as we get older, the teasing gets like bigger, right? And so, and at the time in the eighties, I grew up in the eighties and, you know, it was just quote unquote teasing. And, um, and I was the pawn of it all. Like I was the one that got it all. I was the one that they would call me camel jockey. They would tell me, um, they would come and touch my forehead and say, um, give me a slurpee and say, where's your red dot on your head? And like, they would, um, call me a nigger. And I mean, these are things that at a young age, you don't even comprehend, you don't even know. And I think the pivotal point for me at 13 was the first time I thought of suicide. Mm-hmm. And because I went to school and we had those, you know, those beautiful PE uniforms, everybody had to yes. wear. I had to love those. <laughs> um, and I was not allowed to shave my legs. My mom just said, absolutely not. You're not shaving until you go to high school. You're still a kid. And she just wanted me to embrace my innocence of being a kid. 
However, she didn't know what I was encompassing when I went to school. And so these kids would call me hairy monkey or I would start hearing like monkey sounds and people would be laughing. And then we would start like I remember this specific day we were running track and these three boys were on their hands and knees next to two teachers standing up and the teachers were talking and I was running track. Every time I ran, they would get on their hands and knees and go, Gandhi, Gandhi. And I had already built up this protection around me to say, I will never let them see me cry because mm-hmm. somewhere in me, I felt like if they saw me cry, they would see that I was weak and I have to be strong. I have to be strong to endure this. Like, and that's one of the gifts I got from all of this is the strength that I've learned to have my whole life because knowing in the back of my mind, I had to be strong and not let them see me cry gave me one, a definition of that. I have my strength, but number two, it said it made me real think anyway, that vulnerability crying is weakness. So it was a double-edged sword for me. I remember going home that night. My mom worked two jobs. She put herself through law school. She was a single mom. She divorced my dad when I was like, I think like one. And she had raised my brother and I by ourselves. And so me and my brother were like latchkey kids. So my mom happened to be home. um, And she, from law school, it was the night that she didn't have law school. And I told her and I said, Mom, I hate Gandhi. She goes, what do you mean you hate Gandhi? Now, this movie had just coming out. Right. And so she's like, Vina, do you know what Gandhi did? Do you know what he represented? I'm like, I don't care, Mom. They make fun of me. She goes, what do you mean they make fun of you? I said, every time I run track, they say Gandhi, Gandhi, Gandhi. She goes, Vina, kids will be kids. Two lessons I learned that day. One, my teachers will do nothing. They will not do anything to stop it. Mm. Number two, my mom did not hear what I was saying did she listen yes but did she hear me did she hear the emotions that I was saying did she hear the fear that I had how disheartening for you at that time right yes yes that was the first night that I went to bed and I prayed to God that I don't wake up tomorrow just take me away if you love me God you will not let me live. I cannot do this anymore. Because you have to understand, I've been going through stuff like this from the time I was six to 13. Yeah. Yeah. And I had one best friend. Her name was Tiffany. And we're still best friends. 40 years later, we're still best friends. That's awesome. And she, she always, she was like the only person I felt safe with. So wherever you found Tiffany, you found me. She was a lot taller than me. She was the same age. But I just knew nobody messed with her. So Mm -hmm. I felt like if I was like her little sidekick, nobody would mess with me. She was like my shield. She was the only one who really knew. And she would just say, it's going to get better. I'm not going to let anybody hurt you. I won't let anybody beat you up, you know, and that was the at at six to 13. Like, that's all I had. You know, that's I mean, she was everything to me. Like when her parents went through a divorce, it killed me to watch that because I was part of her family, you know, and. So that's the bond that I formed with with Tiffany and um, and thank God for her. Thank God for her, because, you know, as much as I wanted to die and not wake up, I, at least I knew I had Tiffany. Thank goodness. Yeah. And then what happened just a few short years later? So from 13, I would say from 13 to 34, I was suicidal. That was my out. We say fight or flight. Right. So if we get we get scared. 
scared to live, scared to breathe, scared to do anything, that fear overcomes you. And it's like, at that point, do I stay in this or is it time to go? Mm -hmm. And I know people say suicide is selfish and I get that side. But if you're listening, please understand this. When I was suicidal, I was not thinking they're going to miss me. How are they going to get over me? All I could say is they want me gone. They don't care about me. They don't see me now, so they'll get over me if I am really gone. Yeah, you know what? That's a really important distinction for people to hear who don't understand, right? And don't have compassion for the for the way your perspective when you're in it. Right, right. Yeah. So at 15, there was another pivotal moment. So I gone on to high school. I thought high school was going to be a new beginning because, you know, the different middle schools flood into this high school. So there's different kids and I'd have an opportunity to be something different, to feel something different. And I didn't. It's almost like when people bully you or tease you, whatever word you want to give it, it's like a cancer that grows. Mm. And the more attention we give it, the, and it's not even attention. If we don't kill the cancer, it spreads. Yeah. And nobody was killing the cancer. They were allowing it to happen. And how do we allow it to happen? We close our eyes to it. We close our ears to it. We don't address it because we don't want conflict. Right. So we are not being upstanders. There was not one upstander to say, I got this. This will not happen anymore. It takes courage to do that. And it Absolutely. sounds like there was courage, very, very little courage taking place around you at that time in your life. Right. And I'm not here to blame anybody. I'm not going to blame. Of course, because that doesn't help your process. But, you know, with anyone out there who's listening, I want to encourage them to, to just have a sense of awareness of what's going on around you. Right. Absolutely. At 15, there was another pivotal moment where. I was the scapegoat of a rumor that was being spread around in our sophomore class. And um, I didn't even know what the rumor was. That's I think that was the most ironic thing is that I got blamed for something. I didn't even know what it was. And like a horseshoe of people surrounded me right before I was going to hockey practice. And um, they threatened me. They said, if you ever open your mouth again about this person and this person, I will kick your butt. And the whole it's I. It wasn't the whole school, but at that time, I thought it was the whole school, was just waiting for this fight to happen. And I was so scared. Like, mm -hmm. I feel like that was the most scared I've ever been. And all of a sudden, it dispersed because I didn't say anything. I was like, I don't know what you're talking about, but I'm not saying anything. And so I went to hockey practice and none of the girls would talk to me on my hockey team. Like, they really believed that I was the one spreading rumors. And I lived about a mile and a half away from the school and it was main streets to my house and I didn't have a ride home and it was dark. It was in the fall. So it got dark early. And I remember calling my mom at the payphone. <laughs> it's funny, the payphone. We didn't have cell phones then. I don't remember those. <laughs> and I, you know, I put my quarter in and I called my mom and I said, mom, I have no ride. Can you come pick me up? And she says, I cannot leave here. Like, I have got to work. I have to pay the bills. You're going to have to get a ride or walk home. And I hung up the phone and I walked home. And I remember that day thinking, can I just get kidnapped? Let somebody just take me out of this life. Kill me or kidnap me. And, you know, at my age now, I think, like, who thinks that way? 
Like mm-hmm. how low was little Venu's self-worth and self-esteem so low that she would think like that would be a better life if somebody would kidnap her. Yeah. And I got, try to go to psychology. I'm like, what was I really wanting? You know, what did that mean now? Right. As a coach, I asked myself, like, what would that, what did that mean that I wanted to be kidnapped? And I look back and the only thing that comes up for me is that I never felt seen or heard anyway. You know, it came right back to the whole suicide thing. So who's going to care? Would they care now? It's like I wanted to show them that I was somebody. So if I was missing, they would remorse and be like, oh, gosh, she got kidnapped. And then I would be somebody and I would have that significance that was missing in my life. Like I definitely use significance as a vehicle to get the love and connection from people because I felt like if people would see me, hear me, acknowledge me, know that I'm the best, then they would like me. Right. And I spent my entire life doing that. And so when at 15, I walked home, I got home, I went to my mom's uh, medicine cabinet and I took out all her medicines in her um, cabinet. Now, mind you, they could have been antibiotics and stuff that my mom didn't take. Yeah. I didn't know. Yeah. Because my mom was not a huge pill person. That's hence why she has so many pills in her thing. She get a prescription and put it away and not take it. Right. So I had like five bottles out there. And I was taking the lids off and I got a phone call and it was from my friend. His name was Brian. He went to um, another high school. He went to Huntington Beach High School and he's like, hey, what are you doing? And I said, I can't talk right now. He's like, no, let's go. I'm going to come over. And I said, no, please don't come over. But I just want to thank you for being a friend. And I want to say goodbye. He's like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, I got to go. And I hung up. Okay. I have no clue how he got to my house because, again, we didn't have cell phones. It's not like he was around the corner calling me and he lived at least 10 miles away from me. So, but he, he got there. Now I think like, was I just sitting there contemplating for 15 minutes? But it feels like as soon as I hung up the phone, he was in my house and he walked in, he saw all the pills and I was crying over the pills and I had a handful of pills and I had my glass of water. And he was like, what are you doing? And I just started to cry. Because remember, I didn't let anybody see me cry. Nobody saw me cry. And I broke down for the first time in front of somebody else. And I said, I can't do this anymore. I can't live this life anymore. He's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, they make fun of my skin color. They make fun of my ethnicity. They make fun of, they they blame me for their rumors. I don't even know. They want to kick my butt. Like, why am I here? And he's like, well, I'm going to tell you right now. You have two options. Either you're going to put the pills back or I'm going to put the pills back. And I just sat there crying and crying and crying. And um, honestly, I don't know who put the pills back. So I just, it was a blur at that point. But the pills, you know, I went, put the pills back. Um, and he's like, we got to go. And I said, well, I can't go. I'm grounded. He's like, you were just about to take your life. I'm sure you do, are not worried about being grounded right now. <laughs> exactly. You know, <laughs> you think about, right? Right. And <laughs> so we left and we actually went to our hangout, which was Taco Bell. And <laughs> I just cried. I just, he let me, for once in my life, somebody just let me cry and not judge me for it. Yeah. And he just hugged me and he's like, it's going to be okay. Like life is going to be okay. And I'm like, no, it's not. And we talked and I got home and my mom says, you know, where were you? And I said, it doesn't matter, mom. And she's like, excuse me. And I just want to say our generation, we didn't talk back to our parents. If our parents asked us a question, we answered them. It wasn't like any talk back. It wasn't any disrespect. Like, that's not how I was raised. So for me to tell my mom, don't worry about it, that was huge, that was huge for me. Like, right. I just crossed that line of respect. And my mom said, excuse me. And I said, it's called suicide, mom. 
Like that's how mentally, emotionally I was totally out of it. Like I didn't care anymore. I was done. And I walked up to my room and it's funny because I didn't find out till years later, but um, my mom came up to my room like every 15 minutes to just see if I was still breathing. Like, you so don't she, know the love that your parents really right. have for you, you know? Like, here I'm thinking that, like, she doesn't care. She works. She goes to law school. And yet, she is so afraid that her daughter is going to take her life. And I think that was like, you know, when when I finally found out years later, it was like, wow. Like, there was such a deep love that I didn't even know existed. Like, how are we showing our kids we love them? How are we showing them that they're important to us? Right. We don't have to hide that part. That's what they need the most. Correct. We have to be more open with it. We have to show our kids, not just, oh, they got to know I love them. Like I asked my seven-year-old twins, I said, do you know mommy loves you? They're like, yeah. And I said, why do you, why, what do I do that shows you I love you? And they said, because you're my mom. (laughs) That's so innocent at that age. But let me tell you what's not innocent. When you grow up to be a teenager with low self-worth and self-esteem, just knowing your mom is not enough that she loves you. Mm-hmm. You have to feel it. You like have see to see it in the actions. Yes. Yes. Take time to say, how was your day? How can I support you? What's really going on? Yeah. I'm not going to judge you. I want to make this space safe for you. Mm-hmm. And that difference you mentioned in the beginning between hearing and listening. Yes. Yes. And that comes with presence. Absolutely. And so I ended up in a psych hospital the next day. That was the best my mom can do. Mm -hmm. You know, she took me to a psychologist. I still remember her, Dr. McCullough. Mm -hmm. And um, I got committed. um, And I was in there for two months. And um, my insurance ran out in 30. And this is what's so ironic. You need help. So we're going to put you in. But you only got 30 days. You got 30 days to get better because insurance runs out in 30 days. And when you're not better and you haven't really learned the coping skills that you're looking for, or whatever reason why you still feel you need that safe haven at that moment. Um, I was still suicidal. So the county paid for another 30 days Mm. from me. So um, I had to go to an interview through the county and they had to diagnose me as still emotionally unstable and suicidal um, to get an extra 30 days there. Um, It was there though, that I actually learned how to cut. Oh, Uh, geez. From somebody else who was there? Yes. Yes. yes, there was a girl um, who was my best. Friend. I made a best friend in there who her and I still are best friends, ironically, through this day. Um, she um, her roommate would cut. Mm. And um, and I it, I would at first I was like, oh, my God, what is she doing? Like in the Twilight Zone. But then I remember the pain was so deep and I tried it one day and all of a sudden it's like, oh, wow. I'm not numb anymore. Like I really can feel that Mm. because I just got to a point where I was numb. Hence my book is called numb. Right. I just wanted to numb that pain that was so deep in my heart that like I literally felt it in my heart. There was nothing I can't. That's all I could describe is that it felt like a a heart uh, ache. Mm -hmm. Like, um, I don't know, I guess you can relate it to like if you ever get gassed, you know, like in your chest and you're like, oh, my God, my heart hurts. Yes. Yeah. That's the pain I felt in my heart every day. 
And so when I start, and I would scratch. So people are like, oh, what did you cut with? So there's different ways to self-harm. Some people use drugs. Some people cut. Some people burn. Some people eat. You know, it's just a, a coping skill that they learn to avoid the pain that they're feeling to get a different response inside mm-hmm. of them, emotional response. Um, so I take my finger and I would just scratch myself until I bled. And um, people's like, well, how did you stop? I'm like, well, first of all, let me just be very clear. I don't like pain. Okay. I'm the <laughs> that's asking for the epidural with my first child before I even had my first contraction. Because <laughs> it's like, I am not going to feel that pain. Um, so that definitely was one of the things is like, okay, this isn't working because this really hurts. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the other thing is that when I watched it heal, like I had this thing, like when, when, as it's healing, as it's scabbing over, like that's like, was a metaphor that maybe mm-hmm. my pain was scabbing over, like it was healing. And then what happened was it wasn't. And then something else would happen. And then I would say, you're not good enough. You're stupid. Like uh, the self-talk, mm-hmm. I, you know, when I say I was bullied, I think I bullied myself more than anybody else bullied me. Right. And again, but I had no help. Like therapy did not help me see the internal beauty and what that looked like, because all I could think about is the external stuff. Yeah. Yes. You know, and the external dialogue became my internal dialogue. And that is what kept me. So the I got out of the hospital I ran away from home with somebody I met in the hospital. He was, he was there for drugs. I was there for emotion. And I ran away with him for a few days. But watching him do drugs freaked me out because my brother was an addict. And throughout all of this, he had moved to my father's. So my brother lived with my father and I live with my mom. And um, so it really scared me. You know, when we're talking about fears, that was another fear, like how people acted. And um, so um, I had this girl who was like, my sister picked me up. She took me back home. And then my mom's like, you're going to India. (laughs) I'm like, what? Oh, my goodness. And she's like, I just, I can't do this. Like, I've watched your brother go down this road. I don't know what road you're going down. And I just can't do this. I'm failing as a mother. Like, I can't do this. Mm -hmm. And my grandparents found a, um, I was born and raised as a Sikh. And they found a Sikh school, which were American Sikhs that Yogi Bhajan had created there. And my, my grandparents were really close to him. And so they had an opportunity to send me there and they knew that I'd be taken care of at that boarding school. So my grandparents, like when they, in India, they said we, we deposited her there. And that's what I felt like. I felt like they made a deposit and nobody's coming to make a withdrawal. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and um, yeah, but you know what, for the first time, Heather, I thought maybe life is going to change. Like the one thing that I've always believed in is God. I always knew there was a God. I always knew there was a higher power. I always knew that I was a vessel of God. And I didn't understand at that time why I was going through what I was going through. But I'm like, okay, now God's sending me to India for a reason. And there has to be a reason. Maybe it's because I need a break from the teasing. Maybe Mm -hmm. it's going to give me an opportunity to just be happy because I didn't know what happiness was. And I went to the school and there was all these American people with Indian names. And I'm like, okay, now I feel like I'm in the twilight zone because <laughs> I look like a Venu. You definitely don't look like a Sirisat or a Gurbhajan. Like you look like a, a, a Brian or a Michael or yeah. a Lisa. And so I'm like, what, where am I, you know? And 
this became home for two years. And I became to get teased there because the Americans didn't see me as American because I was Indian. The Indian students there didn't see me as Indian because I was from America. Right. So once again, the teasing happened. And it was really, it, it got really bad. Like I had pictures on my desk because we had the fold up desk there and somebody wrote bitch and slut all over my pictures. Um, there was a time I went for night, night study and I opened it up and there was like a little shrew in my desk. That was the first time I ever saw a shrew. Uh, they were like little mouse with little spouts. They're actually really cute, but it scared the heck out of me. Um, yeah, yeah. Thank you for the description because I'm sitting here going, what does a shrew look like? It's really cute. It's like, it's so cute. Mouse in a little snout. Um, so, you know, it, it just, it never continued. And I remember sitting, India has the most beautiful skies. And um, I, I wish I could go, I haven't gone back since I left there. And I need to go back because I didn't appreciate what was given to me at that time. Of course, the emotional state I was in. And I sat there looking at the stars, just going, okay, can you take me now? Have I lived enough now? <clears throat> you know, I'm now 16 years old. Like, please, God, don't let me wake up. What do I need to do? I went and I <clears throat> took a bottle of Advil and I took them all. Oh my gosh. The only thing that happened was I got constipated for like a week and a half. Oh my gosh. I would have <laughs> thought something more would have happened to you. You know, I, I, I just need to acknowledge for a moment, the God moments in your story so far. So, you know, what you took in were all of these terrible things that people would say to you and do. But then I hear things like um, you still had hope. You still believed in God. You kept thinking that the, that it would get better and you had a best friend. And when you went into this new place, you found a new best friend. So you had the capabilities. You had the hope. You had the belief, the faith that brought you through it. But the um, the focus was on the terrible things that were happening around you and that was seeping into you. Right. Which created that internal dialogue that I wasn't good at. Right. Yeah. 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 Now you, um, tell me about the journal. So when I, um, about, so we're 2019. So I would say in about, about 2017, um, I had an organizer come and do my, my stuff and I was cleaning out my closet and I opened a journal that, and I, I, I'm not a big journaler, but at this point, whatever time in my life, I actually had been writing about different guys I was seeing and what I was going through and whatever back, you know, in like 2004, I think it was 2004. Yeah. 2004, 2005. And in it, it says, I give myself permission to leave in 2016. And why that date? Oh, gosh, it's it brings chills to me because at the time. So I married at 18. I got back from India. I met a Marine. He said he loved me. I married him two years after we got married at 20. I had my first child. And then five years later, I had my second child. My ex-husband was an alcoholic and he was um, abusive when he drank with me. When he drank, he was abusive with me. So I got out of that marriage after 12 years. So. I had to live for my kids. I remember being pregnant with my first son looking for a tree to go kill ourselves because I felt like if I die, I can't leave him with my alcoholic husband. Mm. There's no way. So I'm just going to kill us both. Oh. And that was at 20. And so I had my son early, um, early on. Um, uh, it was like a month early. 
And he was like my saving grace. My son, sorry, (laughs) both of them saved my life because I realized there was something beyond me that I had to live for. Yes. And so when you say what was significant about 2016, my first son graduated 2012. My second son was going to graduate in 2016. So I had this inclination that if I can just get them through high school, then I can finally go. I did my job. Now, where were you in 2017, 18, when you saw that? Were you already in that completely different place? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, But it probably brought you right back, right? Well, you know what it brought me back to is I felt sorry for her. Yeah. And I talk about little Venu being a third person because she is. Mm. You know, she's that little girl that was inside of me that needed the love and didn't know how to get it. And, um ironically, I had an acquaintance that said, go to Tony Robbins, it'll change your life. And I'm not here to promote Tony Robbins, although he's been a great mentor to me and coach, you know, through his seminars and programs. But I did, I did 10 years of therapy before I went to Tony Robbins, and I was still suicidal. I was a director of a mental health institution, and I was still suicidal. I was a case manager for mental health. I'm a mental health professional, and I was still suicidal. So that just goes to show you the mask that people don't even know you wear. Mm. When I went to Tony Robbins, and I sat through the, the three days, and I walked on fire, and I did his Dickens process. It shaped my life instantly in those three days, and I knew at that point in October 2007, that suicide was no longer an option. That because I believe in God, because of my faith, God had got me to this far and there was a reason for it. And my next, however many years I was going to live was going to be for me to explore what was the gift? What was the purpose of all of this? And I'm going to tell you, Heather, I came back from that UPW. I was a better mother. I stopped going to bars. I stopped drinking. I stopped smoking. I stopped being promiscuous. All of a sudden, I had a redefinition of an identity of a person that I wanted to be. In order to be it, you got to start creating it. You got to start creating the habits. You got to start taking action. I had nobody in my environment that knew Tony Robbins. I had nobody to help me support me through this. I had that determination. You know, that strength I told you I found at such a young age. All of a sudden, I unleashed that strength. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, I had a purpose. Yeah. And... That's what motivated me. So when I saw that in 2017, that journal, and I was like, I was so sad for her. Yeah. I was so sad for that person that she was. Like, it was like almost like a mourning. I mourned for her. And then I celebrated her. I celebrated where she was and where she is now. And I still do that because. It was the gift. If I did not go through what I did to understand bullying at its finest, then how would I ever be able to shape lives now? How could I? So that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to take my pain. And I said, what would I tell Venu? What could I tell her to reshape her life at six years old? 
And I started doing that. And I started coaching these kids. And through working with them and working with these parents, I started giving them more and more strategies to build their kids up instead of tear them down. That's fantastic. I started going to schools and teaching. What does it mean to be bully proof? Like a bulletproof vest, a bullet can't penetrate that vest. Mm -hmm. If you're Mm -hmm. bully proof, a bully can't penetrate you, right? It can't get to you. It can't bring you down. It can't knock you down. And and I I really want, if you can, um, provide a couple of strategies for people, but I want to just go back and acknowledge for a moment when you were talking about creating that identity for yourself, it, it sounds to me in hearing your story that the identity, that strength, that beauty, um, that desire to give, uh, it was always there. It was just being masked by the fear and by the voices and, and by, you know, the, the whatever things that you did that just that distracted you from the strength of your soul. To me, it sounds like it was there. And I think that sometimes, yeah, with identity, when you're helping people find their identity, it's more of an uncovering. Mm -hmm. It has to be something that's there, something that's been dormant because of external sources, right? Like, you know, we say we're external, internal people. I was obviously an external person. And what I've been learning is how do I quiet that and become internal? How do I empower myself? Mm. How do I know that I'm enough? Because even through that journey, it wasn't until 2016 that I did a board break at the global youth summit that I, that I, I go to. Um, Vina, you may, you may not remember, but I was there and I saw yeah, it. Yes. And it was, I am enough. And I broke through yes, that. And it was very powerful. Five days later, I found this necklace. I am enough. And I wear it every day. It was like God saying that now that you broke through it, you need to remind yourself every day. Yeah. And I'm going to tell you, Heather, like my life <laughs> has been like nothing but amazing. I am so grateful for all that I've been through. I wouldn't change anything. I wouldn't change that first time that that boy said, don't touch him. He'll turn black. I don't change anything from people calling me a camel jockey. I don't change anything from feeling different in India because all those things and all the fear I went through has helped me realize that my fear is just an opportunity to stop, look around and make a better choice. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. And is that part of what you teach people in your programs? Yes, yes. So I developed the It Helped Turnaround that uh-huh. I move in with families for four days because I want to see what's going on. I don't want it to be an act. I'm just there for a few hours and I leave and then they get back to their normal fighting, yelling, disrespect. And the reason why I do that is because of the fact that if I, and I don't blame my mom, she did the best that she could with what she had. And if I could have helped my mom show me that I have a safe environment to talk in. If I had a mom that didn't blame or shame, would I have been more open with them? Mm. You know, going through my divorce with my ex-husband, where that affected my children. You know, could we have saved our marriage if I had these tools? You know, to be to bring the passion to to figure out what drinking was doing for him and why he felt he needed to drink versus be a part of the family. What was he hiding? You know, um. And so now I bring all of that into this program where I'm not just working with the parents and the kids, but I'm working with the relationship between the parents. Yeah, that dynamic. I mean, I think that's super, super important. And and being there for the four days enables you to be able to kind of see it all, right? Absolutely. And then I do, obviously, the follow-up coaching is probably the most important thing 
because after we do this huge transformation after four days, you got to be accountable and follow through or it's all going to go back to old patterns. So exactly. If you don't replace the patterns with something else, it's just going to come back again. So it's fantastic that you've got the follow up. Correct. And then um, the other thing, the other gift I got from my, from feeling the way I did my entire life is I am now going around the country talking about bullying, self-harm and suicide, giving kids like when somebody you ask for strategy. So one thing is, is that if you're being bullied or your kids being bullied to ask them, what do they think the bully wants? Uh. What's the outcome that the bully wants? Because more than likely that person that's bullying them at school is having a hard time at home. They're not seen or heard. So they have to be seen or heard at school because kids don't bully quietly. Right. People, people bully to get the attention. They get the significance. They get the certainty that they can feel better by taking something away from you. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of the biggest questions I get is my kids being bullied. Vidi, what do we do? The school's not listening. I said, you get a conference with the other parents and the kid and ask them, what is it that you need for my child? Mm. What do you really need? Let's just solve this because it's not working for you and it's not working for my child. And you both need to go to school here. So what has to happen for you guys to get along? You don't have to like my child. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is what you're doing is not okay. And I need to know if my child is doing anything to instigate that so we can just resolve this now. See, people aren't doing that. We want to blame and say, my child, my child, my child didn't do that. And that's not the case. Let's stop blaming. Let's take off the mask and let's get real and raw. Because taking responsibility is the only way to solve it. Right. So that sounds like a a great suggestion for the parents. Is there something that you also offer the kids who are being bullied? Yes. So what I talk to the kids is I ask them to go within and ask them, is this the truth? Right. When somebody says something to them, is this the truth? Is that really who I am? Mm -hmm. And then I also have this thing that I tell them to do is called the mirror challenge to take 10 stickies. And write down I am statements. I am powerful. I am confident. I am friendly. I am beautiful. I'm amazing. I'm a superstar. You know, whatever it is, and you put it on your mirror and you create your new internal dialogue. And when you do that every single day and you look at yourself in the mirror and you do it with absolute certainty and power, embracing that those that is who you are, nothing anybody says will tear that down because you have this new internal voice in you. Yeah, that's the that's the bulletproof vest. Yep. That's fantastic. Because How powerful. One of the things I say is if you know your own self-worth, no one can take away your worth. Exactly. And getting the asking that question, what is the truth here? Right. Helps them have the power of choice and deciding how they want to respond to it. Absolutely. You know what? While we're in this space, before I, I ask you about the legacy that you want to leave, I want to give you the opportunity for someone who's inspired right now, you know, to get that book or to to get some more information from you. Can you please share um, how people can get in, in contact with you or, or any information that they might need? Absolutely. So I have a website. It's www.venuinspires, that's V-E-E-N-U-I-N-S-P-I-R-E-S.com. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. Um, if you just write Venu Inspires, you're going to find me. Um, <laughs> and my books are definitely on Amazon, but you can also get the books off of my website. That's fantastic. And you know what? You also have something special just for our listeners, right? What do they have to do to get that? 
Um, if you just contact me, you can send me an email or send me a Facebook message or whatever. I will give you a free coaching call. And it's not about uh, trying to sell you anything. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to add value to your life. And so um, listeners, when you reach out to Vino or go to Vino Inspires, make sure to say um, the From Fear to Fire podcast so that she can give you that free coaching session. I guarantee it's going to be a lot of great value for you. So that's awesome. Thank you for that, Vino. I really appreciate it. And I'm sure everyone does as well. So what's your legacy? What do you want to leave behind? So it was interesting. We just had a death in our family. I'm sad. Thank you. Um, it was my husband's uncle, and but he was everybody's uncle. You know, he's so great. And yeah. when we were doing his eulogy, and I was listening to it, and I said, "Wow," because he had his, you know, he he had his challenges, but nobody mentioned his challenges. What they mentioned was how amazing he was, and the memories, and how great he was. And so I thought to myself, I said, "What's the legacy I want to leave behind? What do I want people to know about me?" Mm. And I said, "You know what?" I need to show the world that I come from love, that I just wanted to make this place a better place. And I was all about gratitude. Yeah. I think that this is a, in all of my podcasts about from, you know, moving from fear to fire, that's those two things, love and gratitude tie everything together. Absolutely. Absolutely. I am so, I wake up every day. I have a morning routine. I wake up every day. And the first thing I do is thank God for allowing me to open my eyes again. <laughs> what yeah. a difference, right? <laughs> Go yes. pray to God to take you and not let you open your eyes to say thank you for another day for letting me see this beautiful earth and allowing me to have another day to open my eyes. Like you talk about 360 and you know, like I'm the poster child of that. Yeah, that's and amazing. People say you can't change, and I and I and I call BS. I say you can change if you're wise, strong enough. Yes, you can change. You can't change someone else. You can no. change yourself yes. if wise, strong enough. Exactly. I try to tell people that all the time. Like, oh, you're gonna come into my house and make it better. I said, no, no, I'm gonna come in your house and show you how you can make it better. Exactly, exactly, because they have to own it. And what a gift that you are giving to these students when you speak for, to them or to the to the family dynamic when you go in and do an in-home turnaround. What a gift to share the things that were so painful for you and um, have them help everyone else around you. It's amazing. And I'll tell you, I just was speaking in New Jersey and I got a letter from a child because they get to they get to hear different speakers that day. It's living lessons. And I got like 29 letters from students. And one of them in particular said, I just want to let you know I was going to start cutting. But after hearing you, I know that's not my option. And I know now suicide is non-negotiable. And like I just like if it was just that one student that I impacted that whole day, that was worth it for me. Of course, and just that's, one person. Mm-hmm. Right, and that's not the first letter I've ever gotten. I'm just sharing that because if you have a story out there and you think that it doesn't need to be shared, it does, because you might just save a life. Exactly, exactly. So to, to use the, so that it, it has purpose, right? Yes. Your mission, yes. your purpose. Find the gift. Yes. You know, don't let fear, like we have so much anxiety because of fear. fear anxiety is the fear of the unknown dance with the unknown, get excited about the unknown, ask yourself, what else is, does this mean? What else can happen? This is so exciting. Mm-hmm. If you feel the fear, stop and just say, okay, what other choice do I need to make right now? 
And that's the thing. Ask yourself different questions, right? And recognize that you do have a choice. And you have the power in you. Yes. Uh, Okay. So, I mean, I could literally stop right now, but do you have any final parting words of wisdom for people beyond that? Because that right there summed it up for me, but um, I would like to leave with my, uh, my two favorite quotes from Tony, if that's okay. Of course. So one of the quotes that I love that I live by and I teach is you don't get what you deserve. You get what you tolerate. Oh yeah. And my other one that I teach through my coaching is to trade your expectations for appreciation. So when you expect something and it doesn't happen, that's where we get our disappointment. But if you can appreciate what is happening at that moment instead, you'll find different emotions. What a shift that is. It changes everything in your life. It does. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. I am so happy that you were able to come on and share these, um, these nuggets, these, these ideas, the actual tools to help some of our, our listeners who are going through challenge and inspire them. I mean, that's why you've got the name of your company, (laughs) View Inspires, because there is hope. There's always hope with love and gratitude. Vinu, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks.